Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Whole Life Later. I'm your host, Kylie, and with me is my co-host, Rory. Hi. Yeah, he's there. I I promise he's there. (laughs) So today we're going to be talking about a person who is very special to the Wrongful Convictions Collective, who is one of the people who actually inspired our whole organization and has played a very big role in influencing a lot of us into wrongful convictions and learning about them. We are going to be talking about Christine bunch today who is a very wonderful person and we look forward to sharing her story and more with you guys so in 1995 christine was a 21 year old single mother she had moved into her mother's old trailer and was going to school and working part-time at a factory so that she could raise her son by herself. Her son's father was not in the picture, wanted absolutely nothing to do with the child or Christine. So Christine was doing her best to take care of this child by herself. For context, we are in Greensburg, Indiana in the Decatur County. So on June 30th, 1995, it was getting late and Christine and her three-year-old son, Anthony, were watching TV when Anthony started to fall asleep. So Christine picked up the little boy and put him in his room and went to bed. And Christine, who was absolutely exhausted from working and chasing after a very active, happy toddler, fell asleep on the couch. Early in the morning of July 31st, or July 1st, oh my god, she woke up to smoke and... In a panic, she tried to run into Anthony's room, but unfortunately, Anthony's room was unaccessible due to the fire. So she managed to get out of the trailer and tried to scream for help and nobody came. So she ran around the trailer to the window of Anthony's bedroom and she picked up his tricycle and tried to smash the window in to save her three-year-old. She was unsuccessful, and eventually a neighbor had to pull her away from the window and hold her back as she watched her house go up in flames. Eventually, the fire department showed up along with the ambulances, but it was too late when they had showed up. The trailer was pretty much destroyed, and Christine was taken to the hospital. In the hospital, she was treated for burns. They weren't too bad. They couldn't actually determine if she had smoke inhalation because at the time Christine was a smoker and so they couldn't tell the difference between if this was residue from the smoking or residue from the fire. Her eyebrows were completely burnt off. Her hair was tinged and she had burns on her arms that apparently weren't as severe as one would expect in a fire. The doctor claimed they were about the equivalent of having a bad sunburn. And her doctor also noted that once she had been treated, it kind of hit her that likely her son was gone and she started to have a full-blown panic attack. And the doctor decided to give her Xanax as well as a prescription she could take home because it was clear that this horrendous feeling wasn't going to go away right away. And so at the exact same time, there are fire investigators 
looking through her property, trying to find the source of the fire and accelerants, anything to point to whether or not this was an accident or this was set purposely. They did find Anthony's body and were able to get it out of the wreckage. Unfortunately, he was in fact deceased. And so they had a, they sent a police officer to come and talk to Christine in the hospital. At this time, she was on the Xanax and everything was foggy and she wasn't completely aware. And so this officer is interviewing her and she tells him one story. And then he asks her again and she tells him a different story because her memory is foggy. And again, she is on an anti-anxiety medication that, you know, you're not going to be 100%. And so he starts to think this is fishy. And they collected her nightgown, which in one of the stories she had claimed that she had tried to go through the flames to grab Anthony. And they noted that the nightgown was not singed at all or burnt anywhere. And so they took this as kind of suspicious. And so he informed her that Anthony was in fact deceased and that a fireman who went in to get Anthony had to basically crawl over a sort of like a chair that was in the way of the door allegedly and Christine remembers being very foggy but insisting that that chair shouldn't have been there there was not a chair there and so the fire investigators who were from the department as well as the department of alcohol tobacco and firearms found two areas that showed a heavy petroleum distillate and so it wasn't until july 5th 1995 that they brought christine in again to kind of have another interview with her and again at this point she's still taking the Xanax and trying to deal with the reality that her son is gone and so she told a third story and at this point there are red flags going off in the police's minds. It should be noted though that Christine was not informed of her rights at this time and did not have a lawyer present during any of these interviews. And so, yeah, so they asked her to come back for a polygraph the next day. And so she did. And the way they did this polygraph was kind of different than what they normally do. So normally they have you like looking at the polygraph tester person. I don't know what they call them. Administrator? Yeah, thank you. But in this case, they had her facing away from him. And the whole situation was really bizarre to Christine. And just didn't sit right with her. And allegedly, he asked her, why did you start the fire? And her alleged response was, I don't know, wherein they found that she was deceptive. And at that point, an affidavit was issued to arrest her. And so they arrested her with the idea of moving forward. They had set a court date originally for November 1995, but court wouldn't open until February 1996. We're going to get to that in a second, though. Okay, I was going to ask. Yeah. Okay. So Christine was lucky enough to be let out on bail because she was deemed not a flight risk and not a danger to the community. So at the time, she was able to actually get the support of her friends and family. Um, She went and stayed with her mom 
and she was able to reconnect with the boyfriend she was seeing before the fire and she actually at that time got pregnant again and that is when she found out that this boyfriend was as much of an asshole as the first man who got her pregnant this boyfriend was married she found out and did not uh. want to support her or the child so he oh. I know right like poor Christine and also at this time this is when the media gets a hold of Christine's case and absolutely runs with it like it was to the point where the entire Greensburg area believed Christine had purposely killed her son how big of a town is Greensburg that is a very good question or county or whatever let's check this out it has about as of 2019 there was about 11,228 people okay so it's decently sized and yes so the media kind of got a hold of the story and everyone was talking in addition the day before her trial opened the greensburg main newspaper released an article with the headline about her polygraph saying that she had lied when asked why did she start the fire so basically the day before the trial the entire county was pretty much poisoned against her to believe that she was a murderer mm-hmm. and during the time that she was released on bail the police were actually following her every move like surveilling her constantly to the point where actually at Anthony's funeral they were parked in cars across the street watching this 21-year-old mother grieve the loss of her son. Just absolutely disgusting, in my opinion. And another thing that just did not help Christine is her public defender that was assigned to her. This was his first ever big murder case. This man had only dealt with, like, small petty crimes before so he had no idea what he was getting into and this is where we start to see Christine being told to dress certain ways and to fix her hair in order to get sympathy from the jury she was told that her hair was too blonde and too big and so she had to like fix that and she was told to wear very girly clothing and not to speak too much. She was also told not to defend herself. And so the lead kind of investigator, the state arson investigator, Brian Frank, is kind of the one who really presents the fire evidence in this case. So in an actual quote from him in his opening statement, he says, there were two separate fires. One was in the south bedroom along the south wall. That was caused by the liquid accelerant being present. The second fire originated at the doorway, the area of the doorway of the south bedroom into the living room. And there was a liquid accelerant poured across the floor of the living room that went into the front door of the mobile home, end quote. And so he was the one who testified that he had identified a heavy petroleum distillate in flooring samples. So one thing about that is I actually Googled heavy petroleum distillate because I wasn't 100% sure what that is. But it is going to ask you when you first, oh, sorry, go ahead. It's actually something that's found in a lot of household products like kerosene and paraffin wax. So some things that are used in cleaning supplies, such as like carpet cleaners or furniture cleaners. And then another point that I should note from my 
limited forensics experience is that when flooring samples are taken from fire scenes, they are supposed to take an area of which they believe their accelerant is taken from, as well as a control area where they believe the substance isn't. And nowhere in any documents does it mention that they discussed the control areas. And so an independent arson investigator for the defense actually testified that the cause of the fire should have been classified as undetermined because it was really, really likely that it was accidental. And so a lot of this fire evidence really came head to head. But in the end, it was the prosecution that the jury chose to believe. On March 4th, 1996, they found Christine, at the time 22 and pregnant, guilty of murder and arson. And so the next month in April, the Decatur County Circuit Court Judge John A. Westhafer, who will be a reoccurring presence, sentenced her to concurrent prison terms of 60 years for murder and 50 years for arson. And so Christine went to prison and it wasn't good for Christine. Baby, people who are accused or sentenced of baby murder are not well-liked in prisons. That is like a general fact. And it was rough for Christine. She really had to learn to get tough and defend herself. She also gave birth in prison and she recalls waking up and she got to hold her, she was chained to the bed. She got to hold her baby for not even a minute before the baby was taken away. And she was left in the prison without her child. Her second son was luckily taken in by her family. So her brother and her mother took care of him while she was in prison. And they actually brought him to see her quite a bit so that she could have that relationship with him. Also, while in prison, Christine becomes really freaking awesome because she manages to get undergraduate degrees in English and anthropology from Ball State University, as well as she really starts to reach out to people to say that she did not do this. At this time, she starts to learn a fair bit about fire investigation, and one of her family retains an Indianapolis attorney, Hilary Bo Ricks, who actually gets Christine in contact with a friend of hers who happens to be a friend, like a fire investigator, and he helps Christine look at the evidence. And so Hillary Ricks files a petition for post-conviction relief with the Judge Westhafer in 2006. What does post-conviction relief exactly mean? Uh, that is a very good question. I'm not 100% sure as it's not something we have in Canada. So I'm just going to look that up for you. So it is a procedure that allows the defendant in a criminal case to bring more evidence or raise additional issues in a case after a judgment has been made. Got it. So pretty much just like a, a, an appeal kind of thing. Yeah. And so a few months later, Betsy Marks, who was a very big supporter of Christine's, wrote to the Center of Wrongful Convictions and asked them to help. And so a volunteer of the organization who was from the Suffolk University Law School read the letter and saw that this innocence claim likely is true. And so he sent the request off to a staff attorney there named Jane 
Raleigh. And so Raleigh gets together with Hillary Ricks and reads the trial transcript. And this is when she approaches additional forensics as experts in fire investigation, Jamie McAllister, John DeHaan, and John Maluli. And they all agreed that the arson testimony presented by the prosecution at Christine's trial was most definitely wrong. At this time, we have another Center of Wrongful Conviction staff counsel, Karen Daniel, joining Rayleigh and Ricks in representing Bunch. And so part of- I do find it real. Sorry, no, I just find it really interesting. The I think probably part of the reason why you found that conviction in the first trial is just the nature of the expert testimony, wherein the one fire investigator was able to say he made a positive finding. Yes. And could the expert have pretty much said that, no, it wasn't caused by this, but he can't then say that. He instead said that it should have been an undetermined cause, but he didn't ever undermine the other expert's opinion. Yeah. So it's actually interesting that you say that because our new legal team here, the first thing they did was actually subpoena the ATF files. So that is the alcohol, tobacco, and forensics department files from the original investigation. And so the ATF surrenders previously undisclosed documents. So it actually showed that base that what the William Kennard, who was one of the ATF analysts who testified in the trial, said was wrong. There was no heavy petroleum distillate found in the bedroom and no heavy petroleum distillate anywhere in the trailer. There had been a little kerosene found in the living room, which I mentioned earlier is something that is a heavy petroleum distillate. But of course, they had an explanation for this. And it was that Anthony and Christine used a kerosene heater in the living room during the winter months. And so when it came to filling it, sometimes there was kerosene spilled on the floor. And so the critical sample from Tony's bedroom was completely negative. And because Kennard's trial testimony that this accelerant had been used in both the bedroom and the living room and found left, you know, that whole, oh, yep, it happened. Like this fire was deliberately set. Mm-hmm. And the ATF documents were pretty much saying the exact opposite. And so they had actually been withheld from Christine's trial counsel, which is in violation of the U.S. Supreme Court 1963 decision, Brady v. Maryland, wherein it requires prosecutors to turn over exculpatory materials to defense lawyers prior to trial. Yeah, and it's the same here. Like, And, you know, this is something we see a lot in a lot of the cases of wrongful convictions. Like this was the big thing with Glenna Soon, where a lot of the Vice class evidence that was originally there or any alternative suspect evidence, they choose to sort of not give over during disclosure. That's this. It's a, it's, I I find it really interesting because it's a part that's not really talked about wherein, or it's not formally identified as where things go wrong a lot in wrongful convictions is when is this little area where the basically disclosure is when the crown or the state or whoever the prosecutor is obliged to give all of their evidence over to the defense to make an adequate defense or the best possible defense. But a lot of times, sorry, go ahead. It kind of really shows like that 
there is sort of like blame to be put on the prosecutor mm-hmm. that is never really like acknowledged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think prosecutors, a lot of people in these cases try to make the argument of, oh, they're just doing their job. This, I no. think this, yeah, yeah the, like they didn't know it was the police, but this definitely, I think in a lot of these cases too, this really shows like, you know, I think a lot of people like to sort of romanticize what happens in these cases as, uh, you know, the police, they just... They just had the wrong idea and they went off the wrong lead. They just looked at the evidence the wrong way. But this sort of goes beyond that into deliberately sort of choosing to ignore evidence that otherwise would prove them innocent, pretty much. Yeah. And I think it's something that's really highlighted when we look at Christine, because Christine's case is an example of it was really guilty until proven innocent in this case. And it sounds like the prosecutors were really banking on that instead of actually you know looking at the facts they were more like worried about getting the prosecution as opposed to actually like Mm -hmm. looking at the law and seeing the evidence it's kind of sad that people will you know would rather put innocent people in jail than actually properly do their job within the legal system Mm. yeah okay So in 2008, the three lawyers on Christine's team filed another amendment petition for post-conviction relief, and they had the affidavits from the three fire investigators, as well as Richard Hansen, who was an electrical engineer, who actually pointed out that it was likely that the fire of Christine's trailer started because of some sort of wiring problem, which is pretty, happens a lot. Yeah. And these were all in support of Christine's claim of innocence. And so they argued that she was entitled to a new trial because of developments in fire science since her conviction, as well as the new evidence of her innocence and because her rights had been violated by withholding the ATF documents. And so Judge West West Hafer, Hoffer, I don't know. I don't know how to say his name. I don't really care. He's kind of a dick. Um, So he agreed to hold an evidentiary hearing. And we have two people who join the legal team again. We see Ronald Safer, as well as Kelly M. Warner of Schiff Harden LLP, which was a Chicago law firm, join the team. And so after this evidentiary hearing, where they, you know, tell the judge all this new stuff, Judge Dickhead took the case under advisement for about eight months before denying relief in June 2010. And so this is a direct quote from him. While their team had new resources available to her at the post-conviction hearing, the new experts do not create new evidence. The issue raised and the conclusions reached while packaged differently, remain basically the same as they were in the trial in 1996, end quote. And then he added that he did not believe the ATF documents would have changed the outcome of the trial. So this, yeah, this is why Judge Dickhead is- This is the same, this is the same trial judge, correct? Yeah, literally. Nice. Yeah, apparently the new experts do not create new evidence. Like, sir, okay, you should be fired. But you know, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Not really, because he doesn't get fired. Um, Spoiler alert. And so the defense appealed this, and another lawyer joins the team, John Larimore. And so Safer, who joined the team, uh, you know, before the evidentiary hearing, argued the case before a three-member panel 
of the Court of Appeals of Indiana on July 13th, 2011. Eight months later, on March 21st, 2012, the court reversed the conviction, holding two to one that Bunch was entitled to a new trial, both because the evolving fire science met the legal criteria for new evidence and because the undisclosed ATF evidence directly contradicted Kennard's trial testimony supporting fires originating in two places. And August 8th, 2012, the Indiana Supreme Court unanimously declined to disturb the Court of Appeals decision. And so Christine Bunch was released 17 years, one month, and 16 days after her wrongful arrest. She walked out of the Decatur County Jail, where she had been sent to await her retrial, and into the arms of her family, who steadfastly supported her throughout her ordeal. This was not really the end of Christine's troubles and struggles, but we will be talking about that with her, actually, in an upcoming episode. And so, eight days before Christmas 2012, the prosecution actually dropped the charges against her. And so Christine at this point was trying to get compensation for the 17 years she lost. And she originally filed a federal civil rights lawsuit, but that was, she dismissed it in 2019 so that she could seek compensation under Indiana's newly enacted compensation statute, which she played a very large role in getting instituted or enacted. There we go. That's the word. So the Indiana Criminal Justice Institute Board of Trustees ruled that she was eligible for over $8 million in compensation in 2020. And to this day, Christine is doing incredible. She has a wonderful little granddaughter that she is absolutely in love with. And she runs an organization called Justice for Just Us, where she helps provide amenities for other people who are wrongfully convicted or just released from prison. She helps them get job interviews as well as just check in and make sure that they are adjusting okay outside of jail, which is another thing that we will be talking about a fair bit with Christine is the adjustment from jail to being out. So yeah, that is it for us today. If you, well, if Rory has any last comments. Uh, no, I think most of the commentary I'll give on this case will come in the upcoming episodes. Sounds good. So yeah, we are A Whole Life Later, a Wrongful Convictions Collective production. You can follow oh. us on Instagram. Yeah. Christine's organization is spelled with a four in it. Uh, just yes. us for just, just, just us for. No, eight. just. Just I-S for uh, number four, just U-S. Yes. Got it. And you can find that on Instagram. You can also search it up on Google and you can support the organization, learn more about it. We highly encourage you to do that. I was going to get to that before worry interrupted, but you know, oh, yeah, it's fine. Rory. Well, I got there faster. Yeah, I'm proud of you. Thank you. So you can follow us on Instagram at A Whole Life Later or the Wrongful Convictions Collective at Wrongful Convictions Collective. As for us, that is it today. We hope you have a wonderful day. Any last comments, Rory? Nope. Okay. Bye, guys.